welcome to the third series of the Reworked podcast, brought to you by diversity consultancy EW Group. I'm Rachel Wilson, Managing Director. Every fortnight, I'll be speaking to CEOs, HR leaders and workplace activists about the steps they are taking to reform and rework organisational culture. So welcome to the Reworked podcast, Steph Nimmo, um, a marketing professional by trade, and since launching uh, your blog, was this in the plan in 2008? Um, I know you found yourself taking on the mantle of all sorts of different different roles, writer, journalist, author, public speaker. Um, we've had a pre-chat, so I, I, I've been uh, fascinated to hear about your life story so far, and I know listeners will be too, and you've, you've inspired and touched many people um, with that story, and it's now become something of a platform for you, I think, um, in terms of talking about a whole range of different life-changing topics, neurodiversity, grief, motherhood, and being a primary carer, which is where I think we'll probably focus most of our conversation mm-hmm. today. But before, I don't want to preempt, tell your whole story <laughs> for you, Steph. So yeah. would you mind just sharing with us a little bit about how your blog came about? Okay, please? yes, and um, thank you for having me. Um, yes, yeah, so was this in the plan? I, I had... Uh, it's something that I, I was often and I'm frequently found to mutter under my breath. Was this in the plan? Um, <laughs> I, I had three children and my husband Andy and I um, always wanted a big family. Um, and uh, it took little persuading to go for number four. Uh, but things went a little bit pear-shaped with number four. So um, I found out very early on in the pregnancy that something wasn't quite right. In those days... Um, it was difficult to know from genetic testing. This was 2004. We were told there was a one in four chance of us having a child with Down syndrome. Um, and then she, she was found not to have Down syndrome. But things, the pregnancy was very, very difficult. And I gave birth prematurely in December 2004. And at that point, I'd been a marketing director of a... Um, at that point, it was a South London further education college. I'd taken a job a bit closer to home. That was supposed to be my kind of easy job. It was probably one of the hardest jobs I've done, enrolling thousands of you know, 16 to 18-year-olds on courses. But anyway, um, and so my daughter arrived prematurely, and, and I literally did think, well, was this in the plan? You know, there I was with, with three other children, seven, five, and two, and this very sick little girl. Um, and we were told that she was likely to have this very rare genetic disease, which she was subsequently confirmed to have. And I had to make a decision that I really couldn't go back to work. She was in and out of hospital, and I felt very, very guilty, in fact, constantly having to delay my maternity leave, delay my sick leave, and say, I I just, I I don't know what's happening with Daisy. So in the end, I actually handed in my notice um, and found myself looking after this vulnerable little girl. And my brain was starting to atrophy and I started to write because I've always written. I've always been a writer, despite whatever I've done as a profession, I've always written. And so I started writing the blog in 2008 just to capture what was going on because my life had taken such a huge turn um, and was so, so different. And I found myself in Great Ormond Street Hospital looking after this little child and meeting lots of other parents who had their own life stories and wanting to really shine a light on this is a world of which I had no experience and yet a completely random gene mutation, completely and utterly sporadic, had thrown my world upside down and thrown me into this new life and I needed to tell people about it. And so the blog was born. And it did also help just keep my brain alive as well. Just writing it down, it was very therapeutic. 
Wonderful. Mm-hmm. So it's very so for you. It was partly about shining a, a light on other people's experience as well, and yes. particularly of being a, a carer, I guess, in this yes. thrown into a situation unexpectedly. And yeah, I um, I mean, as I say, one minute there I was going to the office and um, you know doing my job, and the next minute there I was in Great Ormond Street and meeting lots and lots of other families who who had very similar stories, and I felt that the world that I had previously lived in. And the world of business and marketing and, you know, worrying about the commute and childcare. Had, you know, I had no knowledge that this other world was happening and everyone had their story mm, to, start, mm, to tell. Mm. And that we were all people, not just an amorphous mass of carers looking after disabled kids, sick kids. We were all individuals with our story to mm. tell. So I wanted to start telling the story and showing the reality of what it was like. And I, and I did feel and I still feel that I have a role to play in... In when I share um, anecdotes and stories, I am doing it on behalf of this whole group of people that I've met on my journey. Mm, mm, mm. And so you, um, this is going back a few years, obviously, mm-hmm. and you, you took the difficult decision to hand your notice in. Mm-hmm. If we can take you back to that point, because obviously yes. we're interested in the employer's yes, role in, yeah. in all of this. Yeah. Um, was it conceivable to you at that point to ask for any flexibility or look at a different model now, in hindsight, which is always great, isn't it? 2020 mm. vision. I wish I had. I, I felt, because I was a head of department and I had a huge team and, and in fact, the woman managing my, my maternity cover then found out she was pregnant with twins. It was just like a kind of perfect storm. Um, I felt really guilty and I felt really um, that I was letting my employer down. And in hindsight, I wish I'd had conversations mm. with them about what can we do here. Mm. But I felt the best thing to do was hand my notice so that they could free up the role and recruit someone in. You know, thinking about it now, um, maybe I could have done things differently, but I was sort of full of hormones from having had this baby prematurely, worried, stressed, worried about money, and mm. I just thought that was the best thing to do. Mm. I think, you know, looking back, I think I could have had a lot more conversations about what was possible. Mm. Maybe a career break and reviewing things rather than just completely terminating. Mm. I mean, it's completely understandable, obviously. Mm -hmm. And the responsibility isn't just on you or the person who's going through this this life-changing moment, is it? It's also on the employer and them creating the right conditions so that you can can make a decision, a balanced decision, without feeling the pressure to just you know hand you notice in or... yes I mean I just I um I just didn't know what to, to do mm. which way to turn mm. um and also I had been told we'd been told that um the doctors basically said we don't know what's going to happen with Daisy we're not even sure if she's going to make her first birthday mm. and I just felt my priority at that point was to just focus on my family mm. and my kids mm. and to just be there for them and to try and you know get through this mm. so the the theme of caregiving cuts across Mm-hmm. Uh, more of your story than just Daisy, doesn't <laughs> yes. it? So, um, yeah. it sort of all your life experiences seems to have been touched by this this role of being a caregiver. <sighs> I know. Again, it's that whole was this in the plan? So mm. Daisy was full on, absolutely full on, and very very medicalised care. Um, she had a very extreme form of this syndrome that she'd been diagnosed with. But then, uh, because I had three other kids. Um, my two boys were diagnosed with autism. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was another form of caregiving that's very, very different and, and continues um, in that they um, 
their needs are quite different. So it wasn't a physical need that it was with Daisy. It wasn't the in and out of hospital. It wasn't the suddenly one minute she's fine, next minute we're blue lighted hospital. It's a constant, low level sort of caregiving that doesn't involve physical care but involves a lot of emotional care and and lots of meetings and things but you know and can be actually in many ways was more stressful because it's an invisible disability Mm, sure and then on top of that because was this in the plan my husband was diagnosed with cancer Mm. so you know it was just like yeah talk about extreme level mm. of caring mm. and parenting I just yeah when we went into walk drive mm. I'm sure mm-hmm. what a what a <laughs> what a confluence of uh, really really difficult difficult moments in, in yeah. anyone's life to, mm-hmm. to have all of that loaded upon you um I mean there's lots that we could talk about around the support that you got I'm sure yeah. from from other agencies and, mm-hmm. and so on but how did you how did you make sense of it? Because you, we've had a, we've had a pre conversation before mm-hmm. this this podcast, and you you just come across as so resilient. <laughs> yeah. How did you find that within yourself? Um, I mean, I I have people sort of saying to me, "Oh, I couldn't do what you did," but you know, it becomes, I think, particularly with caring as well. There's kind of it's it's layer after layer after layer, and you don't realise what's happening until you stand back from it and think, "Blimey, I'm going through a lot here," mm. um, and then. Um, in many ways, because I was kind of in that full-on caring role with Daisy and, and with the boys, when Andy was diagnosed, it was like, yeah, well, okay, bring it on, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, the most therapeutic thing was to write. And then I actually, I mean, when Andy was ill and before Andy was ill, I was starting to write commissioned pieces as well because my blog was so successful mm. and was starting to go viral that I was being asked to write um, and speak occasionally when I could find the time. So I was really still trying to do something for me. And, and I often say this to carers, it's very easy to lose sight of yourself. Um, and, and I really think I did for a while. I lost sight of me and me as an individual because I was just me, Daisy's mum, Theo's mum, Jill's mum, Andy's, Andy's wife. And, and where was Steph in all of this? And the writing and having some sort of identity as a freelance journalist gave me something for me that I was doing just for me. That and, and also I'm a runner and I keep very fit. So just going out and just you know pounding the trails or riding my bike finding the time I could was so important mm. really important I'm sure it was a challenge finding the time <laughs> to go a lot for of early run. mornings yeah <laughs> so um coming back to the sort of employer's perspective mm-hmm. on, on from your insights of being a carer I mean resilience is obviously one skill that yeah I'm sure all carers are developing on yes. the job as it were yeah what what are the soft skills from your perspective do you think employers could be making more of if they were if they were harnessing if they were able to harness more carers mm-hmm. within their workforce well it's yeah it's funny because I reflect back now because I'm obviously in in a in a different situation and looking back mm-hmm. on my life and what skills because I, I'm back now really full-time working and trying to manage a portfolio career and I think um back to who I was previously someone managing a big team and thinking about myself and and what I could bring and it's very much I have learned so many skills around project management and and plate spinning (laughs) for want of a better word the ability and I mean it is actually it is very true if you want something done give it to a busy person because you are so focused because you know you have finite time Mm. if you're a carer and you need to rush to 
pick up a child um, from daycare or whatever, or you rush to meetings, or you've got finite time to get something done because you know something else is going to happen, you focus 100% on that. And so I do find it still very easy to just... I love a deadline, ironically, because it's something you just focus on, you get the job done. And then compartmentalising. I mean, the thing is, it, it is the worst thing in the world. Daisy was so ill and, 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 and she did, she died in 2017. And it's the most horrific thing as a parent. But I also, in order to be able to do my job to be Daisy's advocate and to be her carer and to basically get the best for her when I was in multidisciplinary meetings in Great Ormond Street I had to almost bring down the emotional shutters and focus and so I found that it's I'm pretty good at compartmentalizing but in a positive way Mm. so actually thinking about what are we dealing with here and trying not and and, you know being objective Mm. and trying not to be overwhelmed Mm. um and you know to break things down and I think the other thing um that carers are aware of is you know that um what they can bring they you know I was thrown into this world so I don't take the opportunities for granted to be able to work you know I was thrown into the world of caring and to be able to then work and earn a living from um, the stuff I do now I just don't take that for granted Mm. at all because I know that at any point and for any of us a random gene mutation an accident a car of a cancer diagnosis can change our lives Mm. so it does make you very focused Mm. I mean it sounds pretty maudlin but it also makes you pretty focused on Mm. getting on with stuff well I think yeah I I think it sounds it a lot of these things well what you're saying is very very positive Mm -hmm. in that caregivers have these attributes or they Mm -hmm. develop them uh, and they can really you know even if they continue whether they continue being a caregiver Mm -hmm. I know you still are giving care Mm -hmm. but or not they they have that that's in their toolbox all of a sudden resilience Mm -hmm. um really management skills you just mentioned um focus yeah and stakeholder management I mean for you know you find when you have I mean so I had three kids each with um education and healthcare plans um and so you were dealing with multidisciplinary teams you know everything from top hospital consultants social workers you know and having to manage those stakeholders and recognizing the skills like you know not burning any bridges you know I needed to keep these people happy I needed to keep them and I used so much of my professional skills in how I managed situations with my kids mm. that hone those skills even more that I'm able to bring back I think I'm a lot mm. more confident about you know walking into a big meeting into a room and thinking right okay what's the objective here what's the agenda what are we trying to achieve mm. who mm. do I need on my team who are my stakeholders mm. because that's what I was doing day in day out and when it's a real personal thing you know um, this is I need this because I need a care package for my daughter so I can have time off so I can actually see my husband occasionally mm. suddenly it becomes very mm. real mm. sure yeah I can see mm-hmm. that um, so bringing us up to the current day, yeah. Um, you mentioned that Daisy sadly passed away. Yeah, and I know your husband Andy did. He too. did. So Andy died in 2015 because um, his cancer was terminal on diagnosis, and then a year later Daisy died. So it was kind of full on. Mm. We went from six to four mm. in a year. Yeah. Yes. And so you're two um, pretty much grown up sons yes. now. Yeah. Um, are entering the world of work, I uh, guess. Yeah. Um, and you've got another daughter too. Yeah. So I live I live in a house of millennials. So, you know, this again, was this in the plan? This was supposed to be the point in my life where the kids were older, you know, maybe they were all off at university. <laughs> and, um, you know, Andy and I would have our time. And that 
didn't happen. Mm. So again, I'm trying to get used to a new normal. Um, and, and I have a, a portfolio career um, of various things, writing, speaking, a bit of marketing consultancy, and then, you know, supporting the kids. So Theo, my eldest, is 22, and he works in the civil service in an IT role, which is perfect for a young man with um, Asperger's. Mm. I mean, it's his obsession. From the age of three, I remember him walking into nursery and asking the teacher, do you have thomasatankengine.com on this computer? <laughs> it's like, you know, it was always going to be there. And then Jules, my youngest, is about to start training at chef school. So he works part-time in a cafe. Um, and it's been hard getting them, finding the things that they are passionate about and then getting them into the right roles. But they're kind of now on the trajectory where I think it's going to be okay, but mm. they still need me. Mm. I mean, you know, ironically, yes, I, I am the mum of a 22-year-old who's going to be 23 next birthday, but, you know, I've had to go in before now into meetings with his um, manager and head of HR to talk about reasonable adjustments. Mm. He's asked me to come in as his kind of support person. Mm. So it still goes on. Yeah, so you mm-hmm. still consider yourself a carer. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Because I think particularly with young people with autism... Um, and, and sort of neurodiversity issues is they will hold it together in the workplace um, and sometimes they'll mask and then it's at home it'll fall apart mm. so you still kind of have to be there mm. so is the world of work is enough being done in the world of work to accommodate this type of difference from your perspe- <sighs> yeah. perspective as a, as a parent I think Things have got better, and and um, in a way, it's lucky for my kids that they're at the age they are in the world that they are now. That there is a lot more understanding about neurodiversity and and autism, and you know, invisible disabilities. But what we learned recently with my eldest son is that he was trying to mask his autism and trying to fit in into a, a neurotypical world, and and things fell apart mm. when. He started to have stress and anxiety. Um, he was <laughs> just like me getting here. The tubes were delayed and he was really late and that sent him into a complete meltdown mm. and he couldn't function in work. Then everything broke down and that's when we had to have meetings with HR and he realised that he had to own his autism in many ways and actually be up front. Um, so he's joined the Neurodiversity Network. I think Neurodiversity Networks in organisations are really crucial. Okay. But he's also trying to educate his manager and his peers about what's needed for him so for example his his manager because my son was sort of masking was you know taking him out for a coffee having an informal conversation well my son didn't really hear what he was saying he was just like oh it's great I'm having a nice coffee with my manager mm. and his manager was saying listen mate you really need to pull your socks mm. up because you can't continue being late because you're going to trigger the absence policy and you won't pass your probation <laughs> Theo didn't hear that. Mm. He was just, you know, oh, good, I'm all right. What, you know, and, and I said to Theo, what you need is to actually um, own your autism and say, for me, a reasonable adjustment is don't take me out for an, well, take me out for an informal coffee, but also write down what we said afterwards because I need everything written down. So I mm. think, you know, there's a lot more understanding needed around autism and reasonable adjustments and just neurodisability in the in the workplace from both sides yeah um i think i could have done a better job in preparing actually preparing the boys um to own their own neurodiversity in the limited time i had juggling everything else but also it has to be on both sides yes it, like it also has to be yeah. they should have said you know and, and made some suggestions to 
my son, this is what's worked for other people, how would this work for you? Yeah. And taking advice from, you know, the National Autism um, Society has some great advice and support, and there are people out there that will advise and help. Uh, but sometimes just asking people what their reasonable adjustments are, they don't know mm. until they get in there. Mm. You're obviously a very positive person. Uh, <laughs> is there enough positivity? Uh, let's talk about maybe care, being a carer and mm-hmm. and people who have neurodiversity. Um, mm-hmm. What is there enough positivity, positive messaging around that? I I think what's really struck me. Um, <clears throat> so I was really excited to see lots of stuff around recruiting um, people with neurodiversity, um, autism-positive um, companies, etc. Mm-hmm. But what I'm not seeing enough of is that trickling down. So while an organisation may be very positive about, you know, we actively recruit, we, we feel that diverse people enhance our workforce that needs to be trickled right down to actual line management. Mm. So, And that's what I experienced, I think, with my, my elder son's case. So while he was working in an organisation that, you know, has all these great logos and, and has training at the top level, the junior manager that was managing him in a junior role, it hadn't trickled down to him. And he was kind of old school and he just didn't know what to do mm. and didn't realise and didn't escalate. So... Yeah, I think, I mean, it's great and it's really positive, but I think we all need to embrace and just actually embrace difference Mm -hmm. and understanding it's the whole thing with autism is different, not less. You know, my kids, both boys have so much to offer. So my youngest son, you know, what we found is working um, as a chef and cooking is where he's really comfortable with. Ironically, because I thought he'd be overwhelmed by noise and smells and everything. But he likes the kind of militaristic structure of a traditional kitchen, a big kitchen. He knows his role. He knows what's going to happen. And he feels a sense of pride in creating something and delivering it. And he's found his niche. And, um, you know, he's starting on the chef training. We shall see what happens. Uh, But so far, so good. He says to me that, you know, in the kitchen is where he's the most comfortable. So, you know, I just want to support him in that. that. It's fascinating, isn't it? You've shared so much with us. Thank you so much, Steph, for yeah. being so candid and sharing your story and mm-hmm. your your thoughts. I'm sure will be echoing with a lot of people in terms mm-hmm. of what they can do differently. Um, I just want to wrap up with with a kind of looking forward type of question. <laughs> um, what What are your hopes for the future? Let's say you know your sons are now are now in 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 work, and I guess your daughter mm-hmm. will be too soon. Mm-hmm. What would what changes would you like to see in the future for them or for their children? Um, I think it's a really difficult one. I think it would be, I would like to know that they aren't having, you know, kids like my kids aren't necessarily having to lean on their parents when they get older, if they've they've got a disability, that actually um, they are supported within the workplace to be confident, to talk and to own that own their own disability or abilities and say what they need and what they can contribute Mm. and feel very positive about it. I know Theo says, now that he feels more confident about talking about the fact he's autistic, says that what he would like to do ultimately is to mentor other young people, which is fabulous. And then also, I mean, just actually from a completely personal point of view, so I had to give up, you know, what was a very traditional full-time job 
and then juggled writing the blog and then you know I, I'm on my own I'm widowed and I'm bereaved but I, you know, I needed to earn money and I also wanted to I felt I had a lot to contribute and so I feel very millennial because I have a very portfolio career <laughs> so and and recognizing that just because I'm 51 recognizing that just because a woman is older and formerly a carer or still a carer um, that I can bring a huge amount, massive amount of life experience, but also I'm agile and I've mm. still got lots to learn mm. and can still do a lot. Mm. But I guess now that you're a portfolio worker, you won't <laughs> want to give that up and go and work in a, a no, <laughs> it's No, it's really interesting. So I juggle, you know, sometimes when I feel the need to be with people, I'll take a gig that involves me working in an yeah. office and then other times like, no, nah, I just need to be at home again. I don't, can't be doing this commuting lot. Yes. That's one of the best things, not doing the commuting Absolutely. anymore. So yes. Yeah. Well, I'm going to point listeners towards your autobiography based on the blog, which mm-hmm. is the same name as the blog, which everyone can obviously find online. So mm-hmm. was this in the plan? Yeah. Um, and also your children's book, beautifully yes. illustrated, called Goodbye Daisy. Yeah. Yeah. So they're both available. Yeah. So Goodbye Daisy is, I mean, that's just another thing I talk about. I do a lot of training around is engaging people around difficult conversations around death and dying. And particularly for children, how mm. do you approach the subject of grief, death, the loss of a loved one with a small child, and particularly when it was Daisy's case, a child who has a learning disability. Um, Because, you know, it happened to us. And it is, as I say to everyone, it's the only guarantee we have in life that we're going to die at some Mm. point. Um, So let's get on with living, Mm. really. Mm. Well, that's a perfect, uplifting (laughs) way to end uh, this conversation. There's loads more that I want to ask you, but we're running out of time. Mm -hmm. Um, Thank you so much again, Steph. Really appreciate all of your your thoughts and your your story. Mm -hmm. I'm sure um, people are going to find it really moving and and inspiring too. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I hope this episode gave you some ideas that you can replicate in your own organisation. We'd love it if you could leave a review and also subscribe to Reworked so you don't miss our next episode. Diversity and inclusion at work has never been higher up the agenda. The EW Group team includes learning and development specialists, facilitators, researchers and analysts, all with deep expertise in equality, diversity and inclusion. If you think we can help you rework your own culture, please get in touch.